The state of the universe. What the hell do you know about the state of the universe? And that was the first thing Ray Weiss said to me. The first. And from now on, that will be incorporated into every single introduction I ever do. That's perfect. The state of the universe. What the hell do you know about the state of the universe? Good question, Dr. Ray Weiss. My answer to your question? Nothing. I'm actually, secretly, and don't tell anyone this. Don't tell admissions committees this. Don't tell anyone that's going to offer me a fellowship this. Dumb. Okay? Don't, like, keep yeah, keep this a secret, okay? So anyone listening, like, just keep this under wraps. But the truth is, what do I know about the state of the universe? Nothing, because I'm dumb. But with that being said, welcome to the podcast. Let me tell you something about Dr. Ray Weiss beforehand, because this exemplifies a good human being. Let me tell you what he did. Spelled my name right, okay? Now, this is important to me. I don't know why it pisses me off when people spell my name wrong, but if I go to Starbucks, it gets spelled wrong. If I go to Olive Garden, the bar, it doesn't matter where I go. But Dr. Ray Weiss, the great Dr. Ray Weiss, never spelled it wrong. Not only did he not spell my name wrong, he was incredibly respectful. He knew the name of the show. He knew the name of the show. Listen, I've had people come on here that literally don't know the name of the show. And I have artwork behind me that says, The State of the Universe. And I have like this whole studio setup around me. And you could not possibly mistake it. And I've had people who literally are like, wait, what's the state of the universe? But not Dr. Ray Weiss. Dr. Ray Weiss comes on firing at all cylinders. He says, the state of the universe, what the hell do you know about the state of the universe? Spells my name right every goddamn time. How hard is it to spell Brendan right? Okay? Thank you, Dr. Ray Weiss. You're the only one. All these other dumb, almost said the F word. But you know what? We haven't gotten that far yet. I'm not going to drop an F-bomb 2 minutes 15 seconds into the episode. I refuse. It's off limits until at least 4 minutes, okay? But these dumb... Uh, I have to say it now. You've made me say it, okay? You've made me say it. If you spell my name wrong, you fucking suck, okay? I didn't want to say... I didn't want to have to say that. I, lit I tried preventing it, but you did this. So guess what? New rule, you spell my name wrong, you fucking suck. Okay, now that that's out of the way, Dr. Ray Weiss didn't spell my name wrong, and he's here today to talk to us. And do you know who Dr. Ray Weiss is, if you're listening? If you don't, do you, do you suck? Yeah. Did you spell my name wrong? Maybe not. But do you still suck if you don't know who Dr. Ray Weiss is? Yeah. So Dr. Ray Weiss is a Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2017. He won the Kavli Prize. He won the Special Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics, which, by the way, get a better name, too many words. Also, he's won literally every prize that you could even think to win in this industry, in this field, in the world of physics. He's been through it all. We talked to him today about LIGO. Do you know what LIGO is? LIGO is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. The name, the acronym, doesn't matter. Let me tell you what it does, okay? So when you have two massive objects, like black holes, orbiting around one another, okay, you will not only perturb the space-time, okay? This is normal. Einstein taught us this. Anything of mass perturbs the space-time, bends it, if you will, like putting a bowling ball on an outstretched sheet, okay? Planets, stars, black holes, they all do that to space-time. But binary black holes or binary neutron stars do something even more important. And what they do as they orbit around one another 
is they don't just perturb the space-time and squish it like a sheet, okay? But instead, they literally cause ripples of space-time that go propagating outwards like waves in an ocean. And those waves stretch and compress space as they pass through. Now you would never notice it because the stretching and compressing is on the order of one one thousandth the width of a proton or even smaller. But Ray Weiss and his colleagues and his collaborators throughout the years have come up with a clever way to detect those ripples known as LIGO. So what you need to do is maybe consider watching episode 15, episode 16 of the podcast with Duncan Lorimer or Maura McLaughlin. We talk at length about how gravitational wave observatories work in those episodes. We talk about black holes. We talk about all that stuff. So go watch that if you're confused. If you're not confused, let's keep rolling. So we talk about LIGO, the idea behind it. He was very much the brainchild. He's pretty modest. He's pretty modest. There were people, the idea of detecting gravitational waves was around before Ray Weiss came along. That's true. Okay, but he was very much a pioneer of the idea of using lasers in the way that they are used today. Now, he saw the project from the 60s and 70s when it was just a concept written down on a piece of paper. He saw it out. He saw it out through his life in academia. Did you know he was a dropout at one point? Dropped out of MIT as an undergrad. And listen, we've all been there. We talked to him about that. We talked to him about the progression of trying to get this project, which would cost over a billion dollars to this point. 1.1 billion dollars. Do you know how hard it is to get money from the federal government to fund science, let alone 1.1 billion dollars? Now listen, if you're gonna go invade Iraq and steal their oil, we'll give you a billion. What do you want, five billion? What do you want, four fighter jets, seven fighter jets, 40 fighter jets? You can take 40 fighter jets, you have 20 tanks, we'll give you 70 billion in funding. Is that good? Is that, will that, will that get you the oil you need? We'll do that. But when it comes to science, we're not so willing to throw the money. So how do you get a project funded? That number one might not work. Number two might be trying to detect something that literally isn't there because we didn't know at the time in the 90s. We didn't know if gravitational waves could even be detected. So you have to convince the National Science Foundation to give you a billion dollars for something that might not work. We talked to him about that. What was the process like to try to convince people in the federal government, hey, we need this billion dollars. We need hundreds of millions to build this detector because we think we can find something that we've never found before, okay? What was it like after the detection? The first detection back in 2015, Ray Weiss was on vacation. What was the experience like for him? How did he find out? What process did they go through to try to figure out if this was real? To try to figure out if they had really detected two black holes orbiting around one another far, far away. What was the process like? He talks about how Inside of LIGO, they had to interrogate people. They, they thought someone messed up. They thought someone made a mistake. They thought there, someone did something wrong. They also thought they'd been hacked. They were starting to look into ex-employees, disgruntled people that they had upset along the way, trying to figure out who could have done this. And then, once the discovery is finalized, once it is for sure, we talk about the importance of it. Where does it take us? It opens up a whole new field of multi-messenger astrophysics for us to explore. We didn't get to talk much about the essence of winning the Nobel Prize, and I wish we would have, but we'll have him again on again in the future, and we'll talk about that. I'm really interested in the psychology of scientists who want to win prizes versus scientists who do this for the love and think that the prize is an addition. I'm interested in that. 
And I would love to, to get his perspective on that. Because I talk to a lot of people about that. Because I'm very much riding in the middle. I'm riding in the middle. I don't understand certain aspects of both psychologies. And I wish we could have got a better conversation going about that. But that's not the point. The point is, go to thestateoftheuniverse.com. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever you listen. Do you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, you weirdo? I hope you don't. You freak. Just kidding. If you do, if you're the one person that does, thank you. Okay? Listen, the podcast last month was ranked number nine in India. Okay? And listen, this isn't the first time we've topped the charts in a country. We haven't quite got into the top 100 in the United States in the science category, but we're getting there. We're getting it. We're climbing the ranks, but we've hit the top in many, many other countries, and that wouldn't be possible without you guys. So I appreciate it. Be sure to subscribe to the show. How Rate it. Review it. Keep coming back. I appreciate you guys. Reach out to me. Send me a comment. What do you want? Who do you want to see on the podcast? Let me know, and I'll try to get them. All right. With that being said, consider supporting the Patreon account, patreon.com slash the state of the universe. I noticed that people don't like monthly subscriptions. I would notice that they would subscribe, leave me a dollar, not a dollar, ten dollars, whatever, five, ten, whatever, and then they would unsubscribe right away because they just wanted to make a one-time donation. They didn't want to say, pay it every month. So what I've done is I've opened up the PayPal account now as well. If you go to thestateoftheuniverse.com, you can donate directly to the PayPal. So you could just say, man, Brendan, I really like that Ray Weiss episode. Here's ten bucks. I don't want to give you ten bucks for all the other shit you do. Even though I work so hard. Yeah, I'm that type of person. I'm just gonna gloat about how hard I work. Mr. No Days Off. That's my name. Bye-bye now. So, I probably won't answer anything properly. My, thank you for asking me to be on this thing. Yes. You may get be disappointed. Let's see what happens. Okay. Well, before we even talk about your career and the I things you've to, done, yeah. I, I'm really curious... What did you think about the black hole image of M87 that was released last week? Yeah, I thought it was wonderful. Uh, there were a lot of things good about it. First thing was just the human organization in doing it. You probably know that, don't you? I yeah. mean, the fact is that you have to pull, I don't know how many different millimeter wave telescopes together, get the tapes that write the, the actual data series, and then pull them together so you can get a fringe out of it. That's one superb effort. And then when I saw the image, I was really pulled. I mean, that really was surprising. And the thing that really got to me was the a very beautiful thing in that image, which was that if you, I don't know if you remember this, but the bottom of the image was a little brighter than mm -hmm. the top of the image. Do you remember that? Yep. Yep. And I kept puzzling about that. And, uh, and then eventually it occurred not only to me, but others, that that was really due to the fact that the black hole was spinning. Mm -hmm. And that the bright part, which is the bottom part and the bottom, was coming toward us. That the, the, the let's say the crowd of stuff, the plasma that's around it, they, and it was being dragged by the frame dragging of the black hole. Namely, that the black hole was actually causing the space around it to drag around with its spin. That's mm -hmm. a very interesting effect. And I, when people spent a lot of time trying to show that with a piddling little gyroscope many, many, many years ago, but here was a thing I was doing it in grand scale. And uh, it, and then that's why it was brighter at the bottom. The the plasma must have been coming toward us, and you know, toward the detector on that side, and moving away from the detector on the other side. It was spectacular. Yeah. Okay. Now, when they did this release, um, 
they only released one image like on their big press conference. But if you go on their their uh, papers and on their website, they released several images over the course of several days. And in those images, you can actually see what looks like bulk motion of the gas. And it's actually incredibly interesting. They mm. say that the noise is such that you can't make too much of it. It's possible that it's not actually happening. There's not actually bulk fluid motion. But nevertheless, it, it could we could actually physically be seeing motion of the accretion disk around a black hole. And it's that's the first time in my life where I was legitimately excited. You know, I'm a young person. I'm 23. Yeah. I haven't been in this field a terrible, terrible amount of time. And this is the first time where I was legitimately, like, excited about the release of this. Oh, well, you're right to be. excited. Come on. It was a spectacular thing. Yeah, and, it's incredible. Uh, you know, and I mean, you have to remember something. Maybe you're too young to know. But many, many, many times in the history of relativity, people said, we don't believe in black holes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this goes not only with Albert Einstein, but MIT, which was a hotbed of people who didn't believe in black holes in the 60s and 70s and 80s, they suddenly had to believe when two things happened. The X-ray astronomers began to see things that looked like they couldn't explain the mass. It was heavier. You know, they saw binary systems in which you couldn't see that uh, the binary system had enough mass if you only believed it was an ordinary star. You didn't see it. Or if it was a neutron star, you had to invoke it as a black hole. And there were people here in the theory department, a very famous man named Phil Morrison, a very good man, interesting man, but he had a campaign. He decided that black holes were an anathema. Now, I, they were a huge mistake in the general theory of relativity. And so he kept inventing newer ways of looking at these x-ray binary sources trying to explain them other than by a black hole which was in the end the simplest explanation so the idea of black holes and it's and not believing in them and then believing them and not believing them and not understanding them is a long long history so this is a just a wonderful you know ex exhibition of the fact that black holes exist i mean ligo saw them too but here you actually saw the spin and ligo hasn't really seen the spin yet i mean it will but not yet yeah, now you, you've been essentially, since early on in your academic career, you've been interested in, in black holes and how we No, can... I didn't believe them in either. Living at MIT, they told me, yeah, if you believe it, you're crazy. Yeah, I had other reasons for being told I was crazy. Was this and as I... an undergrad? You, you, weren't, you weren't into the black hole idea? Oh, I was firmly believing that it was a craziness, that the black holes were infinity in Einstein's theory that somehow had to go away if you did the theory right. No, yeah, that's, that, and, and that, I that, that was the way it was explained to me when I was a kid. And uh, so I didn't believe, believe in black holes for a long time, mostly because I didn't believe in infinities. And I wasn't smart enough to know a thing about the Kruskal transformation. I just didn't know enough about the theory. And so when Kerr came up with his metric, it became a little more interesting. And then finally, uh, when the X-ray astronomers saw something and it was very hard to explain any other way, it became overwhelming. But not everybody here at MIT followed that. And then all of a sudden, I, I think the transformation took place in 1990, when we had a very new, interesting department chairman who happened to understand relativity. You may even know the man, Ed, Ed, Edward Birchinger. Mm -hmm. And he began to take note and made people realize, look, these black holes are for real. And he had and done some wonderful work of his own on both black holes and on cosmology. But you're surrounded with people believing in black holes now. Oh, tons of them, yeah. You can't find a denier around me. No, no, no. no. They, they would be chased away. Or either. Okay. Yeah. Well, it has a very tortured history. Yeah. yeah. Let, let's go back a little bit. I want to talk about your 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 childhood. What what? Uh, My childhood. Yeah. What inspired you? Now I know I've read 
everything there is to read about Ray Weiss. I think there might be well, some stuff out there. Don't need new from me. I, I I told a crazy story to people enough, but go ahead. <laughs> there might be some stuff <laughs> hidden out there that I haven't found. Oh, but not much. <laughs> but you, you immigrated to the United States at seven years old. Right? That's right. And you're in Brook. Are you in Brooklyn or Manhattan? No, I lived in Manhattan. I lived on the well. We lived all over the city because we didn't have enough money to live in one place long. You know, you had to pay the rent, and sometimes you couldn't pay all the rent, so you had to keep moving. Yeah, yeah, I'm about at that point now as a PhD student. <laughs> I'm going to be all over Rochester here pretty soon. Uh, <laughs> but you, you have an interesting introduction into science in that you were interested. You didn't care about black holes, I don't think, when you were seven. Oh, I didn't. You probably didn't about. even know that that was such a thing. I didn't even know about Einstein. Right, okay. but you were interested more in electrical engineering. Okay. Well, I was. I'll tell you what I was really interested in. If I had been better. I would have been a musician, mm-hmm. but I wasn't good enough, okay? I mean, you have to be really superb if you want to be a musician. You can get a pretty satisfactory life if you're sort of a punk physicist like I am. You know, the life, you can still get a lot of kick out of things. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, but I, I was thinking of becoming a musician, really, not as a profession, really, but I was mostly interested in music, and I got into high fidelity back in the 40s. And my big break was the fact the Second World War ended, and the New York City streets, down where the where the World Trade Center is now, were flooded with junk, electronic junk that came off the war. I mean, surplus stuff. Like mm-hmm. I could go downtown on Cortland Street, <clears throat> which doesn't exist anymore, and buy, if I want to, for a buck, I could buy a whole radar set with an oscilloscope and everything, the magnetrons, the whole bit. But I didn't have a buck, so I would buy transformers and capacitors. and I mean, all this stuff was coming. And so I built, started building uh, amplifiers, power amplifiers. You could, you know, all the stuff you could do just with a very, you know, for a penny, you could buy a vacuum tube and stuff like that. And so I built a, uh, a power amplifier. I was very lucky. I was extremely lucky because of, of a fire in Brooklyn. There was a fire uh, in the Brooklyn movie theater behind the screen. You know, I don't know if you know how the sound is generated in a movie, mm-hmm. but there are big loudspeakers in a big an array behind the screen. And for some reason, a fire broke out behind the Brooklyn Paramount, and I knew about it from some guy who told me about it. And I went down there with a friend, and we unscrewed all, a whole bunch of loudspeakers, big movie loudspeakers, Altec 604Bs, as they were called. And then I had a whole pile of these, but we had to put new cones in them because they had burnt out. Mm-hmm. And so we got them from the company. And what happened is I had in my room then an FM set I'd made, which was brand new, and uh, this power amplifier and one loudspeaker, one of these fantastic loudspeakers, movie loudspeaker. And I made a crude cabinet for it, and I br- brought people in who were my parents' friends, who we were all immigrants, and we loved classical music. That was what they liked. And luckily, at that time, uh, classical music was being uh, transmitted on FM radio. You know, there was, there was Toscanini was on NBC. And he had a whole orchestra mm-hmm. supported by that network. And then uh, there was the Carnegie Hall in New York. And that, there was microphones in that with high fidelity my microphones. And so I had this thing going in my room as a boy. And I would bring people in and let, let them listen to a live concert. And they were blown away. They couldn't believe it. And so they asked me, could you make us one? So I had a business going almost right away when I was at 13, 14, 15. And I, you know, using more speakers and building more amplifiers, I started installing in people's houses what was in those days uh, high fidelity, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a business going, but, and I loved it because I loved the music, but I had one real problem and that's what got me to go to college. You might as well know it and then I'll let you talk again. But the thing was that, I don't know, you probably are too young to know about phonograph records, right? 
Yeah. Or maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. Much too young. Much too young. Well, these were big plates, mm-hmm. and 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 they were made out of shellac. And the and you, I don't know, remember there's a needle that runs in grooves on that shellac on shellac surface, and the shellac surface was never very smooth. So when you listen to, for example, a pianist on on a phonograph record. Yeah, and when he played or she played something loud, it was easy to, it was wonderful, okay? But it was very quiet and slow. You All you heard was that hissing noise that came from the needle being driven by the roughness of the surface. Mm-hmm. And I said, we got we to gotta solve this problem because it, it ruined the music, okay? So I, I, just, I built some stuff that I thought making filters, I had street electronics. I, uh-huh. I didn't really have any knowledge of real electronics, but I knew I had a lot of experience. And so what happened is that that street electronics wasn't satisfactory to solve that problem, to make filters and stuff like that. So I decided I better go to college. That's what drove me to college. Yeah, now I, here's something I do know about those records. Yeah. And maybe yeah. this is false. Maybe maybe you can tell me. Yeah. I th- I was told by an, an old physics professor of mine back in my undergraduate days that the word groovy comes from those records. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact well, it that... Came from something later. Groovy what? is exactly right. There were grooves, and and uh-huh. just think of here's how the way it worked. Imagine a needle. Here's a, pla- a platter ro- going rotating at about seventy r- seventy eight rpm in those days, and it's moving pretty fast. And a little needle that rides in the groove, just like uh-huh. you say, and it would wiggle back and forth and make voltages in a in a coil because yeah. of a little magnet attached. Uh-huh. That's one way it was done, and that was an amplified, and you would hear music, and that the idea was wonderful, but. And the thing that, that was terrible was that record, the record scratch, as they called it. So, by the way, so I went to college. They wouldn't, at MIT, where I, I got in, they, they, they wouldn't, uh, you know, you start as a student doing general, you know, like you're probably at Rochester. Well, you were, where were you an undergraduate? Uh, like Combing College. It's a tiny liberal arts school, school in Pennsylvania, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Yeah, when, near where? Williamsport. Oh, Williamsport, I know. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, at MIT, you had to take, everybody had to take the same thing in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then that, and then you specialized in the second term, uh, the second year. And I went to electrical engineering, just like you figured. And I had to teach, I had to be taught, I had to listen to power engineering, how you make transmission lines, how you make big generators, all that stuff. I kept asking, when, when, when we get to electronics? I'm, I have some real questions I want to know about. And they never got to it. So I got the hell out of there. It got boring. It's yeah. Familiar. Now, now the, the reason you left, this is interesting. And I've yeah. seen this a lot, actually, in my, in my, days in academia as a student is yeah. people are, are bright-eyed they come in they have an a prod a problem in mind you know whether it's a problem in relativity whether it's a problem in cosmology probably a problem in most cases that they don't know much about but they really want to learn and they right. really want to help solve it and they get chased away because four years of doing supplemental material sounds terrible to them right well they, it's not you can do that if you motivate it properly and right. i think I think now what's happened both at at, at University of Rochester, you know, the other place in 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 Rochester. I don't know how it is at, at your place. Uh, you're at Rochester Institute, right? Yep. Technology, right? Yep. You're probably the same. But MIT many years ago started doing undergraduate research. In uh-huh. other words, I did it when I came back as a professor many years ago. I would in, involve undergraduates in the research, and that's the way that kind of stuff. You re- that's how you retain that enthusiasm. In other words. Uh, you, you're working on not just courses, but you're working with people who would do this for a business. And you can see their problems. You can see how they get disappointed when the things don't work mm-hmm. and how they get themselves out of a mess. 
by, you know, they, they think hard about it and sometimes they're very lucky and they take a walk or they take a swim or something and come back with a new idea about something. And then you see that it's not just all this rigorous thing that you get in a course, which is all condensed and very artificial. You find out what the real processes are when you invent or you think about new things. And that, I think, is the major reason why people should go to college in the sciences, to meet people who do science or do engineering. And that's really what I think is, is the worthwhile part. The courses, you need them so you can learn some math or the rudiments. But you don't have to, you know, you can do that other ways. But the thing you can't do is get the experience of what it really means to do science or real, real science and real engineering. And that is now something that happens in college. And it's, uh, it's beautiful. I yeah. mean, I tell you, most of our, most of our students do that. I agree. 100%. That yeah. I, for me, courses, I, I struggled through them. I jumped through the hoops, but they steal my soul. I, I did well, not. I'm not arguing with you. I yeah, flunked out right. that much. You probably know that. Yes, yes, of course. And I <laughs> wanted to drop out of high school for that reason. I, I, I was, I was a, a rebel. I did not want to be there. I hated it. I was like, why are we here eight hours a day? This, yeah. There has to be something better I could do with my time than sit here for eight hours a day. Yeah. Um, well, in my case, it was complicated. But it, it, I, but yes. anyway, yes, I, I had the same problem. So what, by the way, what, let me just give you a little lesson from that. Yes. Uh, you know, I, the problem I had was this, this record noise. Well, it was solved by technology mm-hmm. almost uh, within a year after I started college. Why? Because people didn't use Slack anymore. They used vinyl. Yeah. That's what the records you might have run into are vinyl. Mm-hmm. And they don't make that kind of noise. They make a little popping noise once in a while, but you can live with that. So the thing was solved by a technical thing. You didn't have to do it with a filter and wild idea of making a adaptive filters, which is what I was thinking about. Because I just didn't, you know, sometimes things get solved by a clever idea in the technology. And that got solved that way. Mm-hmm. And of course, now we have digital records, which have hardly any noise at all. But then some people think they can tell the difference between analog and digital. I don't buy that, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you come back to MIT, right? Eventually you come back, you complete graduate school, you get your PhD. No, 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 no. no. The important thing I know, I'll tell you, the part you're jumping over something which was very important. Yes, let's talk about it. I'm trying to. That's the last thing I'll be. And we talk about my early days. I then flunked out. And then the fact is, because I had this hobby as a kid, building all this electronics. I had a skill that in 1950, in 1953, was saleable. Mm-hmm. That was the important thing. I didn't know that. And so I, will, I went to an old building in MIT here where the, all the labs were. And I walked around in there and I saw people in there and I said, hey, do you need a guy who can do electronics? And I, and I became a technician in a lab for a while. And that was the transition in my life that made all the difference. It turns out I happened to land in a lab that was run by a guy named Gerald Zacharias. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know why you might know the man through the fact that you were the, the physics that you learned in high school and the math and the chemistry was very much influenced by what he did later in his life. But let's not, let's not worry about that. But what he, what he was working on at that time was atomic clocks and his lab. I didn't know that when I walked into the lab. I just I, they needed somebody to help with anything. And so I started doing what I knew and I knew as much as most of the other technicians. Uh, and so uh, I started working with him making atomic clocks. And that was the huge transition in my life. That finally introduced me to Einstein. See? Mm-hmm. And what happened was that he had, he had started making the cesium clocks, which became the standard for clocks. And then he, after he'd done that, and those, by the way, have set this time scale for everybody. You are living off 
cesium clocks time. And all the GPS satellites wouldn't work unless there was some atomic clock behind them. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, also relativity behind it. Mm-hmm. Correct for all the things that we now teach people, okay? So in the real world, you have to correct for the time dilation right. and the fact that clocks move at different rates and different gravitational potentials. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was all. And the thing that he and I, he, he seduced me of it in a very nice way. He said, look, I was probably only 19 or 20, something like that. He said, you know, well, let's make a clock that really is good enough to see the Einstein redshift. And that, I'd never heard about that before. And that was more than exciting. It was unbelievable that you could do that. And so we set to, to, together to start making a clock. There was a clock that was a big clock, and it had a beam of atoms inside of it, and it went in a parabola. Instead of, well, I won't go into all of that, but they were able in this clock, what's called a Zacharias fountain. Mm-hmm. And people now use that to do exactly what I'm telling you. Uh, what, what you do is you send the atoms up, and some of very slow atoms would make a trajectory like a par- parabolic trajectory. And they would spend a long time in your field of view, so you could interrogate them for a long time. That was the idea. Mm-hmm. And we did that. And to we, to our disappointment, both of us, our disappointments, we saw nothing. It didn't work at all. So then, uh, it was about 1956, seven by that time, he went into, into education, changing education, the American scientific education, which was probably the best thing he could have done for the country. And I stayed working on that. We made the apparatus longer and longer, each time cutting a hole in the roof in another in another ceiling mm-hmm. and as we made it long we were hopefully dealing with faster atoms it never worked but the idea was that we would if we ever got that working he and i would go together to switzerland and i would be since i was a young guy i would climb on top of the mountain there was a in on the, Jungf- on the jungfrau there's a laboratory on the top of the mountain mm-hmm. i would take one of these clocks and put it up there and he would be in the valley and we would send signals to each other and and from those signals, you could tell that the clock on top of the mountain was running a little faster than the clock in the valley. And that was the whole idea of the whole thing, and to measure that redshift for the first time. Well, we didn't do it. But shortly after that, there was a method done that actually showed it, that by Robert Pound showed it at Harvard with Musbauer techniques. But that the reason why I had to tell you that story, that was the beginning of the interest in general relativity. Okay? Yeah. And now- I did it for the course. I never took a course in my life in general relativity. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, I, I had a sim. I have a similar situation going on, you know, in the past few years of my life. Go ahead. I'm I'm entering in a in a research field at, at RIT that is, I mean, just the most advanced theoretical general relativity that you can do. And I'm coming into it with no background, but they don't want to hear that, right? They don't want you to tell them. Wait a minute, stop, pause. I need to learn some stuff first. No, no, no. You that's for you to do on your own time because we have things to be done, you know. And so so it's a it's an interesting thing, but you. You, you get asked to teach a course, they expect you to know general relativity, but you don't know general relativity, right? Yeah, but be slow down, slow down. I think they're doing the right thing by throwing you into it. I agree. Yeah, I'm not, uh, in no if way. They gave you this long rigmarole of teaching you everything with differential geometry and all that stuff. By the time you get done with that, whatever ideas you had would have been driven out of your head. I, 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 um, I thank them for that. I do okay. not want to sit in courses well, for four years. Them. No, no, no. It's a, it's a good thing, and and I work best in that sort of environment. But excellent, yeah. But anyway, so you have to teach this course in GR, but you don't know GR. Yeah. Do you? But you can't tell them. Okay, you hired someone who doesn't know GR. Well, wait a minute. You're talking about my story. Yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. My story is that just what you said. Right. Yeah, I, I come back to MIT from Princeton. That's where I went to work with a guy named Bob Dickey, and I uh-huh. we did an experiment together. Let's not go into that one. This, uh, and then I come back to MIT because the guy who saved me, this man, Gerald Zacharias, 
wanted me to come back. I was I, I was a flunked out guy, didn't do well in the generals. I was a deadbeat for any academic, and, and my record was crap. But this guy, and who somehow looked at me and says, you're not as dumb as you look, you know, uh, and you need a guy like that in your life. Everybody mm-hmm. needs somebody like that. So what happened is he, was, he served that function, and it was wonderful. So he asked me to come back to MIT, somehow got me in, and I had then, very shortly after I was here, I started a group on cosmology and gravitation. Okay, well, I knew a lot about the experiments, but I didn't know much of the theory. So I was asked to teach a course in general relativity. Now, then why was that I was asked? At, and this you have to remember the time. It was about 1966 when this happened. And relativity was, I don't know how it was at, at, in, at RIT. I don't even know how it was at U of R. But I bet you there was no course in general relativity in the physics department in 1960s. Very few places had that. Why? Because it had dropped out of the basis of physics. There was nothing you could do. In other words, no experiments could be done. They were all too hard. Right. So consequently, the field wasn't alive. It was mostly a mathematical exercise. Mm-hmm. So most physics departments in the early days of Einstein, let's say in the 20s, 1920s, they had a course in general relativity. But when things sort of slowed down and nobody could do anything new about it, it became a course in mathematics. And uh, that's how it, general relativity was taught in most places. MIT taught differential geometry in their math department. And used general relativity as an example of differential geometry. What they wanted me to do, and I didn't realize that, is to teach it as a vital new science. And of course, things were beginning to happen in the 60s with the technology had changed. Mm-hmm. But now you, you hit the point. They, the head of the department comes to me. I don't know if it's a head, but the guy in charge of teaching comes to me. He says, you know, we want you to teach general relativity. And I couldn't tell him I didn't know anything. And just as you say, I right. have to lie. Every time you have a new job, you got to lie at least once. Of course. And, and most times you get the job by lying, too. You have I to mean, lie. you got to buff up oh, the resume. Yeah. He doesn't understand this. And so I, I lied, of course. Uh, yeah, I could do it. Well, you have to then backtrack like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. If you've been through it, you know the story. And uh, so I tried my best. And the, the students, thank God, were generous about it. I had, this was a graduate course. And mm-hmm. the, I, I learned I got friendly with a lot of students in that course. And we, got, we became buddies, and they realized, what the hell did I know about the math? So they, we helped each other learn the math. It was really quite an experience. And then the interesting thing happened. Uh, two things happened in that course. One of them is uh, some of the kids, in the, not kids, they were my age, a little, little younger than me. Mm-hmm. They had heard Joe Weber. You know, you know who I'm talking about, yeah. Joe Weber? Yep. Yeah. We're, we, were gonna, we were going to talk about him. Now's a good okay, time. Good. Yeah. Well, let's go to it. I mean, but, but, because that was important. They wanted to know what this guy was talking about when he was trying to make detections of gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. And so Joe Weber, for the listeners, was essentially the, the f- I don't know if he was the first, but I guess he was the first he was popular. The first. He yeah. was the first, and he deserves credit for that. Yeah, he was the first person that, that came up with a cl- rather clever idea, I think, a way yes, to detect a clever gravitational idea and, waves. And, and what happened is, no, he and John Wheeler came up with the idea together. Mm-hmm. John Wheeler is this, you know, guru of relativity who had been a nuclear physicist before. Yeah. And then Weber and he uh, went, were at the uh, the um, Chapel Hill conference in 1957, and they went to that. That's a very interesting, anybody who's in relativity, you ought to read, or in this business, you ought to read the, that, the, the questions, and uh, there were questions, all of that's recorded. The questions people asked and the talks that were given, they were all on a wonderful level. And even Feynman was there. Dick Feynman was at mm-hmm. that meeting. And they were all trying to figure out what was real in general relativity and what was just speculation. And also what was just mathematical and what was possibly invariant so that you could actually make an experiment about it. 
And that was a very, very interesting meeting. And uh, out of that meeting came the idea that maybe you should go look for the reality of gravitational waves. And Wheeler and Weber had that idea. Weber came up with the idea of these big cylinders that would be stretched by a gravitational wave. And as the wave went through them, they would then sing on after like a xylophone. They'd been right. hit by like, like a, a tuning a, fork, essentially, right? A, well, tuning fork or a xylophone. Yeah. A little bit of a different, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, so what happened is that the, the kids in the, in, the, in the course asked me, how does that work? And is there any reality to this? He hadn't yet made any statement about seeing gravitational waves. This was before that. Mm-hmm. And i would be honest with you, I couldn't understand his, uh, the way it worked. Because by the time I got to that point in the course, I was thinking only geometrically. I was thinking of the space stretching and contracting, or the time but being changed by the gravitational wave. I couldn't think anymore of a gravitational force. And the way Weber was thinking about it was as a tidal force. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know what GR, you can get that by going to the Riemann tensor, the contracted Riemann tensor, and calculating what is the, as a completely Newtonian problem, mm-hmm. what is a tidal force on a bar or masses or anything like that? And you will get a first order answer that's right. And mm-hmm. that's the way he did it. But I didn't like forces anymore. Right. I mean, Einstein had talked me out of forces. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, yeah, I did that. For, it looked to me like it was completely zany. And so I spent a weekend thinking about how could I explain gravitational waves and how you might detect them to the people in the class without using forces. And so I invented a Gedanken experiment. And that's what the beginning, that's really the beginning of LIGO in my life. Mm-hmm. It was simply this. I, I, and the guy who was very, very influential in that was a guy named F-A-E Pirani, P-I-I, you probably know the guy, P-I-R-A-N-I. He was a theorist who worked with Bondi, and he evolved in his, I'll tell you where it comes from. The idea actually came from a paper he wrote about the geodesic deviation, the fact that you could take two particles having par- on parallel, well, on geodesics that were as parallel as they could be, and looking at the distance between them, mm-hmm. uh, I, I call it the geodesic deviation from, okay, and that idea was sort of translated into an idea that I, I had, which was, let's take a mass and put a laser on it, and then the laser's beginning to come, you know, and put a switch, it'll turn, on, turn the laser on and off fast. Mm-hmm. With a good clock, since yeah. I knew about clocks. Stick all of that stuff on one mass and put another mass some distance away with a mirror on it, okay? Mm-hmm. And now the experiment's very straightforward. What you do is you turn the laser on, indicate the moment the laser turns on with the clock, Send the light beam down to the other mass, wait for it to come back to you, and then look on a photodetector on that same mass when it arrived, and you stop the clock. Understand? Mm-hmm. So you time light. How long does it take the light go, yep. to go from the mass with all that junk on it mm-hmm. to the mass that only had a mirror on it and come back again? And you do that, and you do that when there's no gravitational wave around, and you do it again when there's a gravitational wave around, and you'll find out that time changes. Right. It's a simple, very straightforward problem to do. There's no confusion about it. There's nothing about you don't have to worry about who's doing the measurement. Everything's being done at one place. Uh-huh. I thought it was just a lovely way to teach this. Okay? Yep. And then we did that. I gave it as a problem, too. And they did the problem. It's a very easy problem to do. Uh-huh. And, and we forgot about it. And we wanted a cosmology. And cosmology was turned everybody on. <laughs> and, you know, it's the beginning of the cosmic background. And we got into all of that. In fact, it got me so interested that the next thing I wanted to do is measure the cosmic background. And after the course, I picked up a student in that course. It's, and we actually did some experiments to measure the cosmic background. Okay, so now go forward a little bit to 1969, and Weber writes this incredible paper mm-hmm. where he says, with three detectors, he had one in Maryland and in his lab, 
Another one in Maryland at a golf course about eight miles away from the lab. Mm-hmm. And another one in Chicago at uh, the Argonne Lab in Chicago. Yep. And he, saw, he wrote a paper with coincidence bursts. Mm-hmm. So two or three a day. And he wrote this thing as this is the discovery of gravitational waves. He was not fooling around. He immediately assigned that to being due to gravitational waves. And the nice thing about physics is that a lot of people read this. They were very excited by it. And the very first thing, almost everybody who read it says, that experiment doesn't look that hard. Right. Well, they had tried ourselves. Uh-huh. And, you know, p- putting some instrumentation on a big bar was not that tough. It, it, I mean, the idea, they want to just check it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and there were people in the United States, there were about four or five groups that did that. Then in Europe, there were two or three, a, a couple of groups in Asia. And within a year, a lot of people were not seeing a damn thing. Nothing. Absolutely mm-hmm. zilch. And the guy who was at IBM at the time, who was chief scientist of IBM, was a guy named Richard Garwin. Is that a name you know or not? Nope. Okay, well, he's an important man in American physics because he virtually single-handedly uh, stopped a very stupid thing that the military was trying to do, make us a supersonic transport that would fly in the stratosphere. Hmm. And the idea was military to put troops in places fast. And he realized that it would wreck the stratosphere. And on hmm. top of that, it just didn't look practical. And then many years later, he stopped Reagan's idiocy of putting a, a, you know, a Star Wars together, the idea of trying to shoot missiles down with other missiles. Yeah. And we have that idiocy still with the oil or the madman he have as president now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> he so might I be mean, good to have around these days. What? I said he might be a good guy to have he's around these days. Around, and he's still saying the same thing. Okay? So, I mean, we've got a madman for president. We've got to get rid of him. I, I, if you take that out, I'll be mad at you. <laughs> no, I would never. No, no, no. <laughs> The, uh, so anyway, the, uh, the thing is that he then built, this is now Richard Garwin, built a small little bar, but with intelligence. Mm-hmm. Really very smart way he built a little one, not anywhere as big as, Weber had a thing the size of a man. What Dick Garwin built was a thing about the size of an arm. Mm-hmm. And, but he instrumented it right, and he did the electronics right, and he saw nothing. He only with one bar, he didn't have two bars. Yeah. And he says, I don't see, no- I see the noise. I can explain every piece of noise I see. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any pulses as big as yours. And he hounded Weber at physical society meetings about that. And what eventually happened is that Weber's only defense was, I, you didn't do it my way, which is not a defense in physics. Right. Okay. And so consequently, uh, then I think our uh, Garwin felt that this guy was cheating. Uh, I, that was maybe a mistake on uh, Garwin's part. And he then really sort of tried to nail him, mm-hmm. nail Weber. And, and I thought that was probably over the top. But he felt the dignity of physics was being injured by this. And look, I understand what he was doing. I understand, I understand both people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, but what, 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 what Weber was doing, he was reporting on an experiment which was seeing something that he didn't explain. He couldn't explain. He thought it was gravity, gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. And uh, several of us on the outside tried to explain this, but never mind. Let's go on. I, I'm curious about uh, this, the Weber bars. I'm curious, has anyone in modern day physics said, was there any, was there, a, was there a way that we could do that correctly? Is oh, there yeah. a way that we? I'll tell you, that's that demarcation happened very shortly after, uh, after the big fight with Garwin and Weber. Mm-hmm. Not, not call it when when Garwin and Weber sort of disagreed and. A lot of people who had worked on this thing, very good people, by the way. Yeah. They're not these people who followed Weber were very good physicists. Mm-hmm. And they immediately had a problem. Uh, here's now exposed. Nobody's seeing anything. 
And let me say before that, before nobody was there, even the theorists were getting very skeptical of it because if you believe the general theory of relativity and the formulation of how energy is carried by gravitational waves, which was still somewhat in doubt, yeah. but if you use the, the Landau-Lifschitz method of doing it, mm-hmm. get a number for the for a given strain uh, in the field, you could get a number for the energy per unit area that's carried by the way, the intensity. And when you made that number, you found out that Weber, if he thought that his pulses were coming from some big event, in our own galaxy, that's what everybody thought, something near the center of galaxy burping and making these events that he was seeing, he would have wiped out all the rest mass in the center of our galaxy in a thousand years. Uh-huh. In other words, right. it was quite clear to the theorists that uh-huh. there was something either a most unusual going on in the center of our galaxy right now, or this was wrong. Right. And they, because, you know, a thousand years, you shouldn't wipe out our galaxy. Okay. I hope. Yeah, I'd hope. Okay. And so what happened is that that was another big issue. But nevertheless, here was the here was the conundrum that was facing all the people who had put time into this. Some of them did just what you were su- suggesting. They said, "How can we make this better?" Mm-hmm. And by the way, so you know now, now looking in retrospect, the sensitivity of Weber's bars was around ten to the minus a strain mm-hmm. of around ten to the minus fourteen yeah. to ten to the minus fifteen at the very best. Okay, right. We made our first detection of gravitational waves at a strain of ten to the minus twenty-one. Right. Yes. So okay. Mm-hmm. So that's and a, so that's to give six, to give people a scale in strain, yeah. twelve orders of magnitude in power. Okay. Uh huh. Smaller than what Weber was able to measure. Yeah. To give people a scale for the types of of deviations in space time that LIGO is detecting today, you're talking about, and I, I think I'm correct in saying this. I don't know if you can go any lower now. One ten thousandth the the radius of a proton is that or the width of a proton? It's about it's a thousandth of radius. Yeah, a thousand. We, okay. We're pushing now. We're going to go a little smaller yet. Yeah. So so you're te- detecting really tiny deviations. Yeah, nobody, and that was part of the trouble, and we'll yeah. get to that. Yep. Uh, that was part of the trouble of getting the next. Let me go on a little bit to the to the what that conundrum that people had was when Weber. They, some people who had been working on Weber bars, mm-hmm. and some very very good people, wanted to make better. Weber bars, and they saw right away that one of the problems a Weber bar would have would be that it would get into quantum noise very quickly. Yeah, it was just the fact that you were making these tiny measurements of such small motions, you would be in the regime where you're looking at the quantum fluctuations of a big piece of material. And a guy who really saw that first was a guy named Vladimir Braginsky. Braginsky, mm-hmm. he unfortunately died recently. The other thing is that. That you know, in order to get down to that level, the people who were working seriously on it said they had to cool the bars. Otherwise, the thermal noise, just the Brownian motion of the bar would wipe it out. And that, I would say, three or four groups in the world went in that direction. And they, and, and for a long, long time, they started making other kinds of bars. And in fact, they started making spherical bars, not just bars, mm-hmm. but spheres. Yeah. And spheres turned out to be probably the most sensitive geometry. Mm-hmm. And there are people still now in Brazil making spherical cool, very cool spheres, hmm. big spheres. Um, but then there were other people who were looking at at an, an idea that actually started in, a, in the minds of a lot of others. I was one of them, but I wasn't the only one. The, the Russians had a, a group of, of people, a bunch of pair theorists, Gerstenstein and Puslovit, who we only learned about later, very many years later, that they had written a little paper saying, why don't you use this timing idea? That I I had been invented for my mm-hmm. for my course, yeah as a way of using it interferometrically using using it with interferometers mm-hmm. and then uh, Weber himself in a notebook to in a, written to himself that yeah maybe an interferometric way of measuring rather than 
with piezoelectric sensors, which is the way he did it, might be a better way of doing it. Uh, but nobody really, and then he convinced one of his students, uh, Bob Forward, to think about it also. And I very independently, uh, right about 1971s, began to think, now nobody was seeing anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, huh, maybe that Gedanken experiment that I had described to the, the students in the class really could be turned into a real experiment, not just a Gedanken experiment. Mm-hmm. And but then I began to realize that it, it, it was the, if you use lasers and you use big big lengths you know arm lengths of tens of kilometers or even five to tens of kilometers, you could maybe see a pulsar, mm-hmm. and with a laser interferometer system. But you had to float the masses. You had to learn how to control the lasers, frequency noise, its amplitude noise, a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, and you had to invent a whole bunch of technical things. Uh-huh. And I looked. In terms of the noise budget of such a system, and I didn't publish this. I put this in a progress report in my lab, okay, and, 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 and at the research lab of electronics, because I was supported by the military. And at the time, this was a lot of people who were supported by the military. And uh, then, when the Vietnam War came along, and the military was forced to get out of supporting science in general, and that's a whole other story for your program some other day. Mm-hmm. You should find out why that happened. Okay. Uh, it was the left. The left was fed up with the war. The right was fed up with scientists. Mm-hmm. Turns out they, the two together, the right and the left, managed to try to kill the Vietnam War, which would have been the right thing to do. Yeah. They tried first with, uh, and they said, let's declare victory and get the hell out of there. That didn't work. And then they, the next thing that did work is, here's the military supporting all this science. And our function as scientists was only to generate more scientists and engineers. We had no mandate from the military at all on what to work on. Uh-huh. The function was generate more scientists and engineers because there was a real shortage of them at the end of the Second World War. And that story should be once carefully looked at if you're interested in the politics of science in the United States. I'll, I'll see if I can find a good historian who, who knows. Well, yeah, no, it's a very important story. Yeah, I'll see if and, I can, uh, can reach out. The Mansfield... A guy who was a, he was a senator at the time passed an amendment to the Military Procurement Act. This is in the early seventies, mid yeah, not quite the mid seventies, which said the military should not support science unless it's in their mission to do it. Mm-hmm. That stopped a fantastic program that the government, our government, had in training scientists. Yeah, it, it, you now had to show that what you were working on was relevant to the military mission, and that was locally interpreted. The military had no idea what they needed. It was mm-hmm. locally interpreted by administrators in the different universities. So they used that. The people at the universities used that to clean up their act. Mm-hmm. And they brought people in who they liked better than people who were working on crazy stuff. And that's what happened at MIT. So suddenly I was uh, left without any money, and I had to write a proposal to the National Science Foundation. And what and year is this? This is? I got out in 1973. Okay. Military had supported the initial military. Mm-hmm. had put $50,000 of their money to build a prototype at MIT. We started on that. But in the middle of it all, two things happened. I could, put, I could not put graduate students on it because MIT wouldn't accept a thesis from a person who was doing only technical development. Mm. In those, you had to, yeah, if you could measure a gravitational wave, they would have been very interested in that. But with a little prototype, you had no chance whatsoever. Yeah, six years is a a short time to measure gravitational waves. Yeah, so, you know, and that was not something that was considered a viable PhD thesis. In those days, it was you had to do something with new physics. Well, people began to realize that there was some new physics in that, but it took a long time. Mm -hmm. So I could not put graduate students on it. And the other thing is I lost all the money, so I've got some money. I tried to get money from the NSF. And what happened is the idea of using light 
and the timing of light to measure gravitational waves was universally poo-pooed as an idea that was not going to work. I won't go into the reasons for that. It's people misunderstanding Einstein's theory. Yeah. And the people who, and uh, in fact, when you can easily get yourself into trouble by saying if you let space stretch through the uh -huh. gravitational wave, why doesn't the wavelength of light stretch along with it? And that's the conundrum everybody got themselves into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I, uh, th this is a, a great point, and and for the sake yeah. of time, I want to yeah. stay on this topic, but fast forward to yeah. the early 1990s because the NSF was still very much doubting this idea. I found a quote by the director of the National Science Foundation at the time, Walter Massey, and he says, even though Einstein's theory of general relativity, this is his quote, predicts gravitational waves, they'd never been observed. So you want us to build a machine that you don't know will work to find something that may or may not exist. Uh, very good. That's a wonderful quote. And that was the problem of the field. But the guy who managed to get around that mm -hmm. is a man we now celebrate. His name is Richard Isaacson, and he was the discipline chief for gravitation at the, at, the, at the NSF. During that time, all that time, from the 70s on, early 70s, all the way to 2000, uh -huh. and he single-handedly, because he himself was deeply interested in gravitational waves, had written one of the most important papers on the proof that gravitational waves carry energy. He had been a student of Misner's, and, and, and we just celebrated him, by the way. He has uh -huh. now a, a, an award, if you, you might as well take, a, take note of it. It's an award for young people or old people, but it's for people working. We gave money to mm -hmm. an award called the Richard Isaacson Award, which is for people working in gravitational radiation research, both theory and experiment. Okay, mm -hmm. and you can now, you know, the American Physical Society will give an award to one a person like that every year. They just gave one to Stan Whitcomb, who was the, one of the first really very important scientists in the LIGO project. Mm -hmm. And he just wore that. He was, I was. I just was there a couple of days ago mm -hmm. and celebrated with him the, the winning of that award. But Richard Isaacson is the guy who convinced the NSF, and he was an NSF member, starting with his boss at as a physics boss, that this was an interesting field, exactly the right thing for the NSF to get into, mm -hmm. just because of what you said, yes. namely that it was risky, that they weren't sure the technology was going to go. I mean, here we're talking about measuring ten to the minus eighteen of a nuclear size a, mm -hmm. a meter. And on top of that, we didn't even know what the sources were. The only thing we knew it then in those days was supernova, maybe. Right. We didn't really know about that. Well, we began to suspect that maybe uh -huh. there were uh, compact binaries, but we never thought of that there would be binary black hole pairs. I mean, the idea of black holes was around, but in pairs was not something you could have, in, in, with any kind of credibility, made an argument for. So in other words, just what you said. Now, where did Walter Massey come in? Let me tell you something. He was a hero also in this. This is now, Walter Massey did this much later. This is now in the 70s, but by the time LIGO got to be big time, which is the 90s, in the early 90s, Rich Isaacson and the NSF was solidly behind LIGO. Every opportunity they had to put money into it, they would do it. Mm -hmm. Okay? It was really spectacular, even though we had all sorts of, we had personnel problems, we had administrative problems, and we had problems in the laboratory getting the sensitivity up. And now what happened is the astronomers turned us in about 1990s, turned on us. Okay, and as some very famous astronomer, in fact, uh, John Bacall, who now later on recanted on this because he began to realize. Mm -hmm. But David, Bacall and others, very, very famous people in astronomy, want to stop the whole business of the NSF going forward with this because they said it's not ready yet. It's not. It costs so much money. It will not produce any science that's interesting. How much of that? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. How much of that do you think was because this was such a big project taking so much money? 
from potentially other avenues of yeah, research. Yeah, uh, always what it is. That's always what it is. Yeah, but I mean, you have the the uh, the agencies that support research mm-hmm. have to make judgments. And now it turns out right. the scientific community tries to help them. Mm-hmm. And what we, for example, we're in that process right now. Right now, there is a new decadal survey in astronomy and astrophysics. Yep, which is being going on right now. And it's being run for the to, to look at all the big projects and see how they will are they amenable to working making be making them cheaper making them right is the science interesting enough and they the rank order these things. I will Maybe, spend you know, an hour this afternoon from four thirty to five thirty sitting down and and talking through them. Yes, right. Well, you and it's it's a big deal, mm-hmm. and you'll find out that we could never ever have gotten into a decadal survey in nineteen ninety. If astronomers just looked at this, a total waste of money. We were they we, we were talking about a hundred million or so, a couple of hundred million. By the way, LIGO in its total amount, that includes building both the detector and building the second detector and the first detector mm-hmm. and running it for seventeen years is about one billion dollars. Yep, one point one billion. Yeah, I was going to bring right, that up. Exactly. Okay. I mean, when you put it all together, the astronomers were scared shitless of this thing because they thought it would eat up all the money. Yeah, that could build like three miles of Donald Trump's wall. Well, the hell with that. <laughs> I mean, that's a total waste. But, yes, uh, of course. I'm kidding. But but no, no, no. But you had other things which were not a total waste. Bigger right. telescopes, and that would service a lot more people, a lot more science. They, and they were right in many ways. Uh-huh. So they were, the big thing that NSF should be given credit for is to take that gamble, the gamble they took. And the gamble they took was based – it was risky, uh-huh. and thank God for everybody, they won the gamble. Yes. How much longer do I have you? Yeah, well, you got me for another 10 minutes. Okay. So fast forward now to 2015. LIGO's okay. up and running. It's making detections. Well, actually, it's in its engineering run, and it makes a detection. How do you find out? What what process do you go through? Obviously, at first, you're like, no, 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 no. This Something's wrong here. There's oh, some see, idiot. Yeah, something. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I'll give you my own. Uh, best. I can give you my own, my own take on it. Mm-hmm. I can't say everybody had their own way of coming at it. Right. I'll give you my a very interesting little cute story about me in this. Uh, I don't know how much you know. Do you do any of the data analysis yourself? Have nope. you been involved in that? Okay. Nope. Well, you'll find out the people, and now there are people at your place that do data analysis, mm-hmm. and, and there are people all over who are doing an analysis. And, well, I was sent by one of my ex-students, who is now my boss, okay? That's what happens mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and he sent me down to uh, Livingston uh, to look at a problem that they were tell- telling everybody about. This is just during that engineering run. We unco- uncovered that there was a lot of RF interference coming out of the interferometer. That's, you know, RF, radio frequency interference, uh, like, uh, you know, the radio signals mm-hmm. that would be generated by the stuff that's around in the instrument. And it was disturbing the measurement. Okay? Yeah. And so he, he asked me to go down there and look and I found that the place was a, a, an absolute pigsty in radio frequency interference. I mean, if the FCC, with the Federal Communications Commission, had one of these trucks that goes around measuring RF interference, mm-hmm. had gone down the road by Livingston there, they would have shut down LIGO. It was that bad. Okay? Mm-hmm. That pollution, RF pollution was coming out of that place. Well, all right. Now, this is a couple of days before we're going to make the run, mind you. It's the end of the engineering run. I go down there, and I ask somebody at, at Hanford. This is Livingston where I was uh-huh. to look at the same. And he goes up to Hanford and he finds exactly the same situation there. And so we had a terrible problem. And the problem was uh, they, I was asked by, by, by the, the, my boss, 
well, you know, now you found this. Uh, what should we do about it? I said, well, it's going to take about two weeks to fix this. Okay. Uh-huh. Remember, we made the detection on a Tuesday. Yeah. This is a, this is probably a Wednesday before that Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, what happens is uh, there's big discussions internal to the project. And what came of it was that all these people were heading to the sites. And there was all this activity. And the, so they asked me and others, what source would be disturbed by this noise? And I said, probably a burst would be okay. Uh, a compact binary coalescence would probably be okay. Maybe even a, a periodic source, but the thing that would you really get screwed up is a stochastic background, because uh-huh. these are things that go and and so they had a discussion and they said, well, we're not going to try to fix it now. And so I went to Maine, where I was headed to go to a, for a vacation uh-huh. to Bar Harbor. Is that right? Uh, you... Acadia National Park. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. such a beautiful. I was there this past summer. Place. Yes. And so, uh, all right, my wife was very happy that I got out of this. And, and so what happened is that, that so now I'm up there. Uh-huh. And I clearly want to know what's going on. The run starts, and I go to the computer, and I see, I go to the, to the log at, at Livingston. It says, fix it day has been canceled. Uh-huh. Now, what is that? It means every Tuesday. This is, the thing happened on Monday night. Yeah. Or Tuesday morning, really. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. That's right. Tuesday, very, very early on Tuesday morning. Uh, and what happened is that they fix it day has been canceled. What does that mean? And I look, uh, why would they fix it comes about what you now do is in every run, you have to give a time to allow you to clean things up that get, have gotten broken. Uh-huh. But for some reason or other, which none of us understood at that moment, they decided not to have that and keep running. And I looked at the log up at Hanford and the same thing, fix it day had been canceled. And we do that simultaneously. So we don't mi- we minimize the downtime for the combined right. pair of Okay, so all right, and then I get an email, and I said, "Go look at this email at, at the site." And uh, what it was was that initial, the very first sighting we had of the two thirty solar mass black holes, with a filter which was rudimentary. The filter that filtered the data was not any more than you have in your studio to uh-huh. adjust the base and the treble. That's about it, and maybe to take some lines out, sixty cycle lines out. And then you look at that; it looked much too big. So the very first thing all of us thought. And I did too, is that we had been made our, you know, we did make our own signals. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know, yeah. we injected signals to test the entire system. And mm-hmm. that was just blind injection. That didn't take but a day to get rid of. We knew that by the end of the day, we knew that that was not true. The people doing that were not even ready to do it yet. And the next thing was really terrible. We all thought maybe we'd hacked. And <laughs> do you know that story? What was that? The importance that we had been hacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. outside. And that took almost a month and a half to get straight. Did you, you have a culprit in mind? Were you, or did you well, have of course we had culprits in mind. We had <laughs> disgruntled employees in mind. We had people on the outside who want to screw us. We had every, I mean, and as time went on, and we did more and more investigations, and we eliminated more and more possibilities. Now, one way is just that the hackers came in and wrote on top of our tapes, okay? Mm-hmm. That's the easiest one. But then they must have gotten into the instrument. And how deep did they get into the instrument? So you began to chase the signals. I won't go into all that. Yeah. It took a long time to, and then some people went even nuts and they said, maybe they got into the boxes. Mm-hmm. They, they put little, you know, automatic circuits into the electronics boxes. And I mean, and, and, but it, what happened is as time went on, these hackers got smarter and smarter, but less and less likely. Do you understand what I just said? Yeah. Yeah, that's key. And so, but we never came to the point at the end where we said, look, we have proof positive. There are no hackers. We never were able really not to mm-hmm. say, yeah, these guys are geniuses. They, right. have, they do everything. Uh-huh. You could never get around it. And so Occam's razor took over. 
and we began to say, okay, well, let's believe it. Yeah. That was an adiabatic process, very mm-hmm. slow, about a, about a month and a half. And then by, you probably know this, by December, we had another one. Yes. And we had then- a make one in, in October, but we had another one in December. And that one, wow, that did it for many of us, that this had to be real. Yeah. Well, I hope that we don't find out like in a month that, that it's been hackers all along. I, I hope that doesn't happen. I don't but think it will. We get the I'll second... tell you why you won't, because the neutron star settled it for everybody. Yes, yes, of course. No, there's no chance anymore of that. Yeah. We get the second detection then, and then what's the mindset amongst the the people who started it all, like you? Are, are you thinking at this point... This is Nobel Prize worthy, or are you not even thinking about that at all? No, you don't think of the Nobel. The Nobel Prize is an, is a, in German noch dazu, which is in addition. Mm-hmm. In other words, what you first think about is that first of all, how much fun it was to do build all this stuff. Right. That's very important. Mm-hmm. And don't throw that away. Okay. If you have a convivial group of people working together and they get a kick out of making things that are new and interesting, that was really the thing that kept everybody going. Not the Nobel Prize. That was not on people's minds, at least not on mine. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the thing is that what eventually came sort of hit us is that to to me, the thing that hit me was, my God, if this is right and it seems like it is right, we've shown something new about Einstein's theory. That was to me the very first thought, mm-hmm. namely that it really works at high, you know, high velocities at the damn near velocity of light and it, and, and strong fields where, you know, GM over RC squared, you know, the strength of yep. the field is close to one. And I said, this has never been done before. So Einstein should be extremely happy. I wish I could talk to him. That was my <laughs> first thought. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and then it later dawned on most of us that, and this is now the real thought that comes in, is that we actually have opened a new field. And that has slowly but surely dawned on all of us. Yes. That this is a brand new field of science. And the idea that we're going to learn something far more than just gravity. We'll learn a lot about gravity. But we'll learn also about the universe. In yeah. very interesting ways that have, we haven't done before. And we become part of the mainstream of astrophysics. That has only dawned on many of us in the last few months. Yeah, I have it written down. Word for word, what you just said in my notes here. I have it written down. This opens up a whole new field. Multi-messenger astrophysics. Yeah, yeah. Where now, with the binary neutron star merger that, that was recorded by LIGO, and the follow-up message. So in other words, you detect the signal, you right. determine its neutron stars, you send out word to all the other astronomers in the world, the X-ray astronomers, the gamma-ray astronomers, the radio astronomers, the infrared astronomers. You say, we have a good idea that we just witnessed a binary neutron star merger, and we, we have a good localization. We say it's, it's somewhere in that region of the sky. Go look for it. And yeah. that has opened up and solved so many problems that have pervaded observational yeah. astrophysics no, for decades. a very nice decades. description you have there. Yeah. And that's it there because that's a good place to end. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so with that being said, it, it's fantastic. Uh, I hope that in the future we could talk about it some more if, if you're up for it. But yes, I, I thank you for being here. And the recording well, is done. Thank you. All right, Ray. Good um, interview. You did fine. Yes. You, let me, you, let me, you let my bullshit come out, see? Yeah, I, me... see, I, I tried to. It's, it's, it's... Thank you for listening, everyone. I appreciate it. I hope that you subscribe to the show, like, rate, review, do all the good stuff, okay? It really helps. It helps us grow. We're going to be number one in the world. I've been saying this. And listen, get on now. Get on the get on the bandwagon. Just get on it, okay? Listen, there's enough room here for everyone. 
I know physicists and astronomers can sometimes be overweight because we sit down all day, but it's okay. Get on the bandwagon. The tires might be flat right now. It might look kind of shady. You might get a splinter from sitting on the seat, but we're going to patch that shit up and we're going to the top. Enjoy the future episodes. Please come back for more.